Good morning. Good morning. You guys are very excited to be here. It's because it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? I do want to tell all of you who are rooting for the Patriots today that we forgive you. There's no judgment past your loved here. Okay? All right. Uh, how many of you guys here are Star Wars fans? How many of you here love Star Wars? How many of you here are wrong about Star Wars? That's, just so you know, that's everybody else who didn't raise your hand and say that you love Star Wars because there's only two answers. You either love Star Wars or you're wrong. Star Wars is the best. Most of you, or if any of you have met my children, unfortunately, I've sort of already indoctrinated them in this idea. My son will be walking around here singing the Imperial Death March. And for those of you who don't know, that's Darth Vader's, that's Darth Vader's song. And, and, and I'm not sure why he empathizes with the Empire at this point, um, but... But that's where, that's where we lie at my house, which is, I'm not going to lie and say I'm disappointed. I just prefer you choose the other side. Uh, so Star Wars has been a big part of my life. It's been something that, that, that uh, honestly, it was the first live-action movie I remember seeing with my dad, right? It was, I remember watching cartoons, but, but nothing took my breath away like Star Wars did. For those of you who haven't seen it, it opens up with this blaring trumpet and then comes the Star Wars logo and this, this scrawl of, that basically re tells you everything that's going on in the movie. But I was little enough that I couldn't read that. I couldn't keep up with the pace of it. I remember reading A New Hope, which tells you that I didn't see the original, right? But I, I read A New Hope and something about freedom in the galaxy and just wait for that dumb scrawl to get out of the way so I could see the, the, the spaceships blasting each other, which was my favorite part. It was so awesome. It, it, even at the time when I was a little kid, it was just amazing. And then, right, there's these, these the, the ships are, are blasting and we finally get a look inside of one of the spaceships. There's this explosion and then more lasers and in comes Darth Vader. And at that moment, you know that that dude is bad, right? The music starts, that's Danny's favorite part, the, the, the music starts. But then, there's just something about his presence. He's this big, menacing-looking figure. He's got this really deep voice, and he just explains how bad, or, or what he's going to do to the empire, or to the, the rebellion, right? He represents the empire. He's going to take out the rebellion. So in the course of the scene, he goes in, and, and, and he, he captures Princess Leia. And that's how we learn who's bad and who's good. But before that scene takes place, Leia's able to get one of the droids or one of her droids off the planet and onto Tatooine. And there we're looking for this random person named Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, a lot of stuff happens in between there that we're not going to go over because it would take all day. But, although you guys are the 11 o'clock, well, never mind. We'll start. Just kidding. So, we get there. When the droids finally get to Obi-Wan Kenobi, there's a simple message for him. Leia says, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. You're our only hope. And we see hope prevalent in culture today. We see it everywhere, right? We always want to see hope. We were watching The Hunger Games last night. That show's about hope. We hear it in music. We hope that the right person is out there. We see it in literature. Everywhere, we have this innate desire to hope that there's something more or something better out there, that good conquers evil. It's built into us, right? And that's what we're going to look at today, was we're going to talk about hope. So if you guys want to turn with me to Luke chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there's a white Bible underneath uh, your chair. We're going to be on page 505 of that Bible. 
Now, to catch you up really quick, because we've been cruising through the book of Luke, right? So, so the last couple of weeks we spent, we've gone through a chapter of Luke, and so to kind of catch up to where we're going to be today, there's a couple of things that I think are significant to happen before we dive into today's text. So Jesus gives a, a really intense parable about what happens to the seeds of those who hear the word, or what happens to the word of God when, when you hear it. And then he talks about the light, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, and then he walks on water. But right before where we pick up, he's been across the sea in Gerasene. So, so Jesus' ministry, by and large, has been in Galilee. That's where he spent most of his time. But at this point, right before, he sailed across the sea, and he's in Gerasene, and there's a man who's been possessed by a demon for a long, long time. And Jesus goes there, casts this demon out, and everybody's response is, you need to leave. Right? They've just seen this guy who's been, who, who for lack of a better term, has been crazy. Right? He's, he's terrified people and tormented people and, and acted erratic. And now Jesus is sitting with him on a rock and he's, he's calm and cool and collected and everybody's freaked out. And instead of seeing, wanting to know more, they just say, hey, you need, to, you need to go. And that's where we pick up in our text today. So it says in verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when Jesus saw, uh, when the woman saw that she was no, not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that she should be giving something to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. All right. So that's a lot to get through, right? So what's happening here, right? Jesus is sailing back, sailing back, and we see a crowd on the beach, so what's different about the crowd in Galilee and the people who are in Gerasene is that Jesus has developed a reputation over the last couple of weeks because he's been, he's been, been, been challenging the status quo in terms of, of teachings, but he's also been working all these crazy miracles, and people want to see what this guy Jesus is going to do next. So Jesus is, is approaching the shore, and you can imagine the crowd, whether it's 50 or 200 people, there's a crowd of people waiting for him to get back because they want to see what Jesus is going to do next. And when he gets offshore and when he gets off the boat, he encounters a man named Jairus. And Jairus immediately walks up to him and falls 
at Jesus' feet. So it says here that Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, and the ruler of the synagogue was an important person at the time. So like today at church, right, synagogue was a place where the Jews of the day would go to, uh, they would go to sing songs, they would go to pray together, they would go and listen to a sermon, and the ruler of the synagogue's job was really similar to what the executive pastor does here, right, or does in church today. They're the person that makes sure that everything runs smoothly. They're the person that makes sure that all the details are taken care of, and that was his job. Now, what that tells us about Jairus is that he was also someone that people would have recognized, right? He was a prominent figure in the synagogue, so people knew who he was. You can imagine standing in a crowd, right? If we were standing in a crowd and I needed to get from point A to point B, I would have to force my way through the crowd. Now, fortunately for me, I'm taller than most of the crowd, so that's easier. But like if you're some of my close friends who are really short, that's really difficult, right? But if it was someone who was well-known and needed to get from point A to point B, what would naturally happen is that person could approach and say, hey, I need to go over there, and everybody would kind of part, right? If, it's, if I need to get through the congregation to get somewhere, I'm going to have to force my way through. But if the governor of Utah comes in and needs to get, for, get through the congregation, people are going to let him pass through because they recognize him and know who he is. And this is how it is for Jairus, because he's able to walk up and fall down at Christ's feet. Now, Jairus is in a pretty, pretty bad predicament, Right? For those of you who are parents, there's probably not anything worse than the thought of what Jairus is going through. See, Jairus' 12-year-old little girl is at home dying. For 12 years, Jairus has been able to go home to a little girl, to the joy of having a child, to the fun of having a child. This, This person with whom he's been tasked with teaching and raising and protecting is at home dying. And that's a terrible place for him to be. He doesn't know what else to do at this point. The fact of the matter is, is that as the ruler of the synagogue, he would have been someone that people would have approached if they were in a situation like this. This is someone that would have been consulted if someone was at home with a dying child. And yet here he is in this circumstance where his daughter is at home dying, and he does not know what to do. But he remembers that this Jesus character has been going around Galilee healing people and working miracles. And so he approaches Jesus and he says, falls at his feet and says, I need, I need your help. My little girl's at home. I need, I need you. Maybe you can do something for about this. And so Jesus gets up and goes with him. Now I think that there's a lot, of, there's a lot to uncover in that piece because it's very simple. Jesus just goes. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But what's interesting about that is if we look back at the previous seven chapters, or if we look throughout the Gospels, the the Pharisees and the scribes of the day were always trying to challenge Jesus in a way to put him in a position where he would fail. Men like Jairus were in opposition to him. And so if we look at our own lives, I think sometimes what happens is we get caught up too much in the debate of what religion is and lose sight of who Jesus is. See, we have a tendency to want to talk about whether or not this thing is more important than this thing, or how should we should do this at church and we shouldn't do this thing. But when your 12-year-old daughter is at home dying, none of that matters anymore. 
Suddenly, the order in which we, we pr perform our services is not important because you are desperate and need someone to help your little girl who's at home. And so I would say to you, if your faith is one that consists of spending a lot of time debating other people about what church should look like or what religion looks like, you're probably too comfortable in your faith. Because it, at some point, we all have a position or we all come into some form of calamity where something terrible will happen to us and none of, that, none of those debates are going to matter anymore. The details, if we're spending all of our time on the details and then something happens, we're not gonna look at the details anymore. And what happens throughout the Bible, and in this specific instance, we have a man who, who, for all intents and purposes, was doing everything the right way. He was doing everything the way he was supposed to. And yet, when everything is taken from him, when the most important thing in his life is taken from him, he's left only with the option to turn to Jesus. And I think that that's an important piece for you and I. Because at some point, you may come to a point in your life where calamity strikes. And your only hope at that point will be Jesus. You can't save yourself from that situation, but Jesus can. So Jesus starts moving, and they, the crowd is with him, and so they start heading towards Jairus' house. And along the way, we meet a woman. Now, this woman has had a discharge for 12 years. So for 12 years, Jairus has been incredibly happy being with his daughter, the love and joy of having a child at home. This woman has been suffering for 12 years. And you can imagine her being stuck in the middle of that crowd, right? Everybody recognized Jairus. Nobody recognizes this woman. She's being pressed in around just like everybody else. And she thinks to herself, if I can just touch Jesus' cloak, maybe he can heal me. I just need to touch his clothes. She doesn't want to go for, from to confront him. She just wants, just wants to touch his clothes. So a couple of things that are really important about that and about who she is that we learn from that. The first thing is she's unclean. So Leviticus 15.25 tells us that any woman who's suffering from a condition like this is considered unclean until it stops. So for 12 years, she's been unclean, which means for 12 years, she hasn't been allowed to enter the synagogue. For 12 years, she's been cast out and, and left alone, ignored by the people because she's unclean. We also know that she's poor. She spent all of her money trying to get well. She's put all of her hope into a doctor. Somebody can fix me. But nobody's been able to do anything. So as a result, this woman is probably single, alone, and she just wants to find reprieve. And she thinks, maybe Jesus can be that person. Maybe I can just touch his cloak, and it will all be better. So she forces her way through the crowd, and when she finally gets to him, she, she, just, she, gets, a, she gets a hold of the, the garment, and for one second, she has instant relief. <laughs> she touches his cloak, the bleeding stops, and she's well. Her life has just changed dramatically. But in that very moment, Jesus turns and says, who touched me? So all of that joy and all that excitement that she probably just felt just came crashing down, right? 
She's, she, in that situation, one of the things is, is that we, 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 if you are a, uh, were to touch an unclean woman or unclean person, you would be considered unclean, which means you would have to go through a bunch of rites in order to be clean again. So this woman, who shouldn't be there, by the way, right? She shouldn't be with this group of people. She, in Jewish culture, as a woman, she doesn't have any right to touch a man anyway, has now just touched this teacher who's been walking around performing these crazy miracles and made him unclean in front of everyone. Now she's in trouble. Now she's afraid. So Jesus says, who was it that touched me? And Peter says, I love Peter's response. He says, he says uh, dude, everybody's touching you. You're standing in a crowd and everybody is touching you. We're getting assaulted right here. Okay? But he says, no, someone specifically touched me. And I think that we, in a lot of senses, are like this woman in that regard, right? This woman doesn't want to come forward. She wants to hide from what she's done. She wants to hide from her sin. And I think we do that too. See, if we, we, a lot of times we think as, as people who go to church, we shouldn't behave or act a certain way. And so what we don't want to do is have other people find out about us. We don't want to get caught, Right? So what we do is we pretend that it's not real or we hide from it and pretend that, that nothing's wrong with us. But what we learn from 1 John 7.10 is that isn't what Christ wants. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, Jesus knows that you are broken. He knows that I am broken and that I need him. He doesn't want me to hide from that. Now, that isn't a license to sin. Don't, don't misunderstand me. That isn't somebody saying, yeah, that means you can do whatever you want. That isn't what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's okay to bring your broken self before Jesus, that he wants you to come before him broken. Matt Chandler, who's a a pastor out of Texas, says, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when they stumble and fall, when they screw up, they run to God and not from him. Because they understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated on their behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. He knows our condition. We cannot hide that from him. But he wants us to come forward. He doesn't want this woman to come forward so that he can scold her or embarrass her. He wants her to come forward so that he can demonstrate to those that are in the crowd that he loves her. And so what happens is she, she comes forward, she admits what she's done, right? She tells the crowd, yeah, I touched him, and, but, but, but I was healed as soon as it happened. And she presses forward, and, and what she does is she falls at Jesus' feet, just like Jairus. We have these two people who are completely opposite in every way, with the exception of that they've been, there, they've been in joy for 12 years and, and pain for 12 years. Every other thing about them is different. And yet, at the end of the day, they find themselves in the exact same position, which is at the foot of Christ. They're both desperate and hopeless, and they have nowhere else to turn. 
Jairus doesn't have anywhere else to turn except for to Christ. He doesn't know what else to do. This woman has tried everything, and she's hopeless and helpless, and all she can do is turn to Jesus. And that's just like our lives. At some point, we're all desperate. At, all point, at some point, we all realize we're in need of something more than what we can provide to ourselves. On our own, we cannot do it. So they continue to Jairus' house, and when they finally arrive there, uh, the teacher comes out and says, or, or, or someone from the house comes out and says, leave the teacher alone, she's already dead. So I can imagine how bad of a position that Jairus is in at this point. He's just watched Christ heal this woman by touching her cloak, so now he knows that he probably could have taken care of his daughter, but they're too late. They're too late. They didn't make it. And that's a rough place to be, I think, for Jairus. And I think a lot of times that we have a tendency to look at ourselves and think it's too late for me. Right? It's too late for me. Christ couldn't possibly love me or come, let me come back. I can't come back from where I've been. We also think that about other people. We look at the lives of other people and we think, they're too far gone. We can't help them. Jesus can't help them. They're too far gone. But the reality is that isn't the case. Nobody's too far gone. So at this point, a lot of people like to say things like, see, you just have to have more faith. If you have enough faith, God can do anything. He can fix anything. You just have to have enough faith. What do you say to someone who has terminal cancer in that scenario? Oh, you didn't have enough faith. If you would have had more faith, that wouldn't have happened to you. It's not about the amount of faith you have. This isn't teaching us about how much faith you have. It's not telling us that your faith tank isn't filled enough. Because if that was the case, we'd be turning people away from who Christ is. What this is telling us here is that there are two desperate people, not two faithful people. These are two people who had their backs against the wall and didn't know what else to do. And so they came to Jesus. They've lost all hope because everything that they've put their hope in couldn't deliver for them. Jairus thought that if he lived a certain way and did, a, did certain things, that that would ensure that he lived a blessed life. The woman spent all of her money hoping that a doctor could make her well. But their faith isn't what healed them or what changed things. It was that Jesus intervened when they fell at his feet. Jesus intervened. He healed them. And for each and every single person here, there will be a time in our life when we will be desperate. There will be, we will go through something, a desperate time, whether it's, whether it's cancer or death or divorce, something will drive us to a place of desperation. But in the grand scheme of things, we're all already desperate. See, in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And in Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners, and the penalty for that sin is death. But Christ is waiting for you. He was waiting for me to come to him and fall at his feet where he can give us rest. So maybe, maybe you're like Jairus. Maybe you've spent your life checking off all the boxes. You thought, if I just do this thing and that thing, and, and I will be blessed for the rest of my life, and then something terrible happened to you. I'm up here to tell you that your only hope is Jesus. Perhaps you're more like the woman. Maybe your whole life you've never felt good enough. Maybe you've been told that, that by the religious people in your life that you are not enough. Maybe they've told you that you are an outcast. You felt alone. You felt isolated. Maybe, maybe you felt unwanted. I'm up here and I'm telling you, Jesus is your only hope. Or maybe you're like the little girl in the story. Maybe you think that you've done something so bad that there's no coming back from it. You've done too much. There's no, no one could ever love you based on what you've done. Jesus is your only hope. Without Jesus, there, there is no hope. Today we, 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 we took the bread and we took the, the, the grape juice and we celebrated communion. And we talked about the great price that Jesus Christ paid for every single person. Every single person is represented here in this narrative. Everyone. Christ died for everyone. He paid the penalty by hanging on a tree so that each of us could live and have rest. He gives us hope. Our hope is in Him. He's the only way. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I don't know, come talk to us after. Because I'm telling you, Jesus is your only hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand before you as broken, unrighteous people who are in desperate need of you. Lord, on our own, we try and we try and we try and we fail over and over and over again. when you step in, Lord, and when you intervene, it changes us. And Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that our hope would not be in the things of this world, but that our hope would be in you. That our hope would be in what you've done for each of us. And we say these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.